broken and in need of redemption. This is our confession song today. Thank you. 
promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness, your faithfulness. I'm still in your hands. This is my
Lord God, as we gather together again today, we're just reminded that your heart is to gather all of your people as a mother hen gathers her children to her womb. Lord, it's such a gracious gift that we have to come together knowing that the battle is won. It's something that you've done for us, God. And paradoxically, you did so on that cross. Lord, you laid your life down for us, for our salvation. And God, that is why we're here as your beloved sons and daughters. We thank you for that gracious gift. And we know that it's something you will continue to do throughout time. We praise you for that beautiful, beautiful gift in Jesus' name. Amen. Fourth through sixth graders, if you're in here, we hope that you do join us next week uh, for the 1045 service for a time of group discussion. Uh, But for now, please, I invite all of you to safely and respectfully greet one another, and uh, we'd encourage you to say hi to somebody new. That was a great cadence. It was great. (laughs) I think it's so awesome that we don't, like, play underneath, like, the prayer. Yeah. Like, because it's like this... There's no transition for like this musical. Oh, okay. We're done now, I guess. Well, welcome, Redemption Church. My name is Ben. I serve in our kids' ministry. I'm part of this church family. I'm in the Colson RC just around the street here on Musselbrook. Uh, if you're new here, welcome. We're glad that you're here. As a local expression of the family of God, we seek to embody the gospel in all of life in the Arcadia area. We're one church with 10 congregations throughout Arizona. We're gospel-centered, we're outward-focused, and we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. So today is Mother's Day, and in honor of Mother's Day, we have some snacks in the back here. Stephanie was gracious to provide those. Ladies of the church, we do invite you to partake in those. Men, if we could lay back and lay down our lives as Christ laid his life down for the church that he might make her holy. I promise that we have an inheritance in a few weeks for Father's Day, which is a lot of old dad's root beer. So, you know, enjoy. Uh, There are two quick announcements for today. First of all, over the summer, uh, we are doing a donation drive for Hope Women's Center, a wonderful organization that we partner with. This week, we are accepting donations for pantry items, which you can drop off back in the back at the Connect Desk. Uh, If you don't have something to donate today, that's okay. Head back to the Connect Desk anyway. Grab one of the handouts. Meet Andrea Hamilton. She's our CGI person for Arcadia now. She's a wonderful person to hang out with and talk to anyway, so just go back there and meet her. Uh, The second thing is that we have a men's lunch coming up this month on May 19th at 11.45. Uh, We do have a special speaker for that day. It's Neil Pitchell. He is the pastor of Central Operations for Redemption Church. For those of you that don't know him, uh, if you'd like to get to know him, you can actually pop online to the Redemption AZ YouTube channel. There's a couple of great interviews that he did, and you can get to know a little bit more about him and his heart for ministry. Uh, If you are interested in heading to the lunch, please do RCP to Tyler Thompson. That way we have a good headcount for it. So, since it's Mother's Day, in lieu of an interview, we'll be doing a Mother's Day reading that we've done the last few years. Now, while I am not a mother, I am the child of one, so I feel honored to be up here today (laughs) to deliver this reading to all of you. Like many of you, I'm the child of one. (laughs) As I was reviewing... Sorry. As I was reviewing this reading for today, I was struck by the number of moms in this church that have been such kind sisters to me over the years. And while I can't list everyone, I was so amazed how many faces popped up as I prayed through these lines. I'm so grateful for this fellowship. Mother's Day is a sweet time for many. We love our moms, but it can be a hard day for others as well. 
And so we read the following charge as a way of embracing the diversity that we have in community and our need to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. To those who gave birth this year to their first child, we celebrate new life with you. To those who've experienced the loss of a child, we mourn with you. To the moms who are in the trenches with their kids every day, patiently teaching and loving despite it all, God sees you. To those who walk the hard path of infertility, often fraught with frustration and disappointment, we walk with you. For the single moms who somehow manage to do it all day after day, we see you. And to those who are pregnant with new life, both expected and surprising, we anticipate with you. To the foster moms, mentor moms, and spiritual moms, we need you. To those aging mothers, we still need you. To those who have warm and close relationships with your children, we celebrate with you. To those who have disappointment, heartache, and distance with your children, we pray with you. To those who experienced abuse at the hand of your own mother, we acknowledge your experience. To those who lost their mothers, even this year, we grieve with you. To those who will have emptier nests in the upcoming year, we grieve and rejoice with you. Where would we be without the strong and faithful mothers in our lives? And so this Mother's Day, we, the church, walk with you in all these things, and we know that mothering is not for the faint of heart. Please pray with me. Father, you have brought us into your inheritance, beloved sons and daughters born again through the washing of regeneration and the pouring out of your spirit through Jesus, our Savior. That glorious inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for us is such good news that it radically changes our lives. In the brokenness of how the world is and how we are, we can forget what it is to be your children. But when we struggle and doubt, you tell us through your prophet that you could no more forget us than a mother could forget the child of her womb. That warm, intimate love reflects the loving nature of your spirit hovering over the deep, generating the creative power that you poured out in the beginning. Today, we thank you for the mothers in our lives that uniquely bear that part of your image to all of us, honoring them in the sacrifice and love. Thank you for the gracious gift of salvation. Thank you for these beloved sisters, and thank you for your son, our perfect elder brother, by whom we become family. In his beautiful name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Would you please rise with me for the reading of God's word? All right, we're in John chapter 12, 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have with me. That has been the reading of God's word. You may have a seat. Amen. Thank you, Freddie. 
Good morning, Redemption Church. So good to be here with you all. You know, as I was preparing, I realized I haven't gotten a preacher since December of last year, which is wild how fast it's gone by. But I'm really thankful to be here with you all this morning. Um, so Jesus is good. Let me pray, and then we'll get, we'll get into the word. God, I pray that your word would be alive this morning in our hearts. God, that you would bring the truths in Scripture to bear in us. God, that what's said up here from you, that that would stay and stick and resonate and be considered. And Holy Spirit, that you would bring that to bear. And God, what's said that's not of you, let it be forgotten. God, I pray that these words here from John 12 uh, would shape us more into your image, Jesus. That's why we're here. We're here because we are all people who have been touched in one way or another by your spirit. And now we get to gather together and learn from your word. So thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, welcome. Uh, if you are new here, you should know I'm not the normal teaching guy. Uh, Pastor Frank is away, um, and I am grateful to be here. So you should also know that as a church, we're going through the Gospel of John, and we've made our way through chapter, chapters 1 through 11 to now, and now we're starting chapter 12. So turn there with me if you haven't already. We'll be in verses 1 through 11 today. Now, right away, right off the bat, I want you to see a couple of things uh, before we even get into it. The author, John... He's weaving together a lot of stories that actually intersect with our passage here. And so I think it'd be helpful to take a second and just name those narratives and show you those so that when we get into them a little deeper, you'll have some of the context there. The first one is that the story arc of Lazarus is ending in this passage. This is the last time that we see him do anything. He's referenced one more time later on, but, but this is it for Lazarus. And so we should recall, when we see his name, the whole Lazarus story up to now in chapter 11, where we saw him die, dead for four days in the grave, and Jesus actually raised him up to life. And now he's just wandering around the area talking about it, and the word is getting out. People are getting excited. There's a crowd drawing in for that. The next thing you should know is this is the start of what's called the passion narrative of Jesus. So from here on out, everything in here in one way or another is going to point ahead to the cross and to the resurrection. And so we're going to see a few references like that in this passage as well. So at the center of this passage, we're going to slow down and we're going to read it slowly because I want you to pick up on some of those forward-looking clues. The next thing you should know is this is the beginning of Judas's narrative. So Judas, Iscariot, the guy that no one wants to be like, the backstabber, right? He's the traitor. He's the guy who betrays Jesus. His story begins here in John. And we know that his story doesn't end very well for him, right? It does not end well for him. There's probably some sort of Godfather-type reference that Frank would insert right about now about some betrayer thing. Um, but I'm going to go with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Any other Marvel fans in here. He's, just picture Loki, right? He's like Loki. Loki looks like a good guy. You might think he's a good guy, but at the end of the day, 
he's just looking out for himself. He will betray you the first chance he gets if he thinks it'll work out better for him. Just picture that guy. All right, so having a bigger narrative picture of these things will help keep in mind, like we said, this, this larger picture of the narratives that John is, is building. Because as we'll see, I think the reason John is building these narratives and weaving these stories together is because like he says in John 20, verse 30, as we've talked about many times, this entire book, all its stories are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's what he's doing. He's building towards that. Now, that belief is not a one-time thing, but an every day, every moment thing, believing in Christ, having life in his name. So with that said, and those things in mind, let's read verses 1 through 2 of John 12. It says this, Six days before the Passover, Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at a table. So in just two verses, we've got uh, place, time, and, and the major characters set. We know right away this is six days before Passover. So very quickly, Passover was a time that all the Jews in the region would, ga would gather, if they can, to Jerusalem to celebrate this. You remember the Exodus story. There was a sacrificing of a lamb, the blood on the doorpost that kind of marked God's people. Well, this is a, a huge hint that Jesus is becoming the Passover lamb. So you could say it's six days before the Passover, the once and for all Passover. And now the blood of Christ marks us. So the people are gathering from all over the region. It was, it was a, a, a place to be. Anyone who could be there was there. Just picture for Phoenix like the Barrett-Jackson car show or something like that. Like, that's the closest equivalent we have. So everyone who could be there was there. That was the place to be. Now, and you see who else is there? Lazarus. Lazarus is there, reclining with Jesus. Now, just the fact that Lazarus is mentioned as being there is stunning. He's there in the flesh. He's there in the flesh. But his part of the story is done. Like Frank mentioned last week, we don't actually hear him speak because his role in the story is not that. His role is to show God's power. So he's there too. And Martha is serving. I think she's exercising her gift of hospitality. We know from the other gospel accounts that this was not her home. So she's jumping in and serving. And because it's, it's what she loves to do, I think. So then there's another uh, Bethany sibling. So there's Lazarus, Martha, and then we also have Mary. So let's see what Mary's doing in verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So probably the thing, if you've not heard this before, probably the thing that's jumping out to you is her hair? She used her hair for this? It seems kind of strange. And if you've read this before, just think about that. She's using her hair. Uh, it's not exactly what we go to when we're wiping the counters off in our home, right? It's not absorbent. It, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. It's kind of a strange thing to do. It's, 
It seems like a really intimate thing to do. So remember, uh, one commentary, I'll, I'll just say this, one commentary said that it was part of a custom when anointing to use hair. I don't think that explained, though, why hair? Like, yeah, okay, it's a custom, but why is it a custom? Now, it helped me to understand and to remember that this was not likely her home either, and it was actually the job of the host of the home as a sign of hospitality and deep respect and love to wash the feet of your guests. And apparently this was not done by the homeowner. And you can read the other gospel accounts of this story to get more on why that is. So one reason could be that because it's not her house, a uh, microfiber terry cloth rag that you got from Costco probably just wasn't available to her. It wasn't within arm's reach. But in any case, this is what seems important to me. Her proximity to Jesus, the fragrance that she poured on him and wiped with her hair, stayed with her long after this act. Long after she changed her clothes, her nearness to him meant she carried that fragrance around wherever she went. I think that's a pretty strong picture of Christian devotion today. It's our proximity to Jesus that's like a fragrance we carry around wherever we go. What we need to focus on in this passage in verse 3 is her devotion. Look at the devotion of Mary. This is devotion, like capital D devotion to Jesus. And I'm going to make the case here today that her example is one we can and should follow. Throughout his whole ministry, Jesus has been talking about his death coming, right? He's been talking about it, hinting about it, and every time we read the disciples' reaction, it seems to go right over their head. They're missing it, but Mary seems to be the only one in the story who gets it, who heard him, and more importantly, believes him and acts on it. This is the very center already in verse 3. This is the center of this passage. This is what John wants to slow down and get you to see each word. So let's walk through it with me one more time. Look down in verse 3. Mary, therefore. Now, for those who are Bible scholars, you know that therefore is a clue. You should look back and kind of see, okay, wait, why? Mary is doing this because of something. I think it's pointing to the fact that Jesus was there. I think his presence. So Mary, because Jesus is there, she does this thing. What did she do? She took a pound, not a little, a lot, a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus. Other gospels include she poured it on his head too. Jesus would have been saturated fully by the devotion of Mary. And think about this of sitting at his feet. Have you ever literally sat at someone's feet before? That's not something common to our, our culture where we just sit literally at someone's feet. But that's a pretty intimate, close thing. Think about how intimate that moment was to be that close to someone. And then more so, she begins wiping his feet with her hair. Letting down your hair in that culture would have been something 
you would do mainly with your husband. This was a scandalous thing, but do you think that's what was on Mary's mind at all? I don't think so. No, her love of Jesus was scandalous. And I don't mean it was sexual at all. I, I think it's that she didn't care what people thought of her devotion to Jesus. She only cared what Jesus thought. And so Mary's devotion to Jesus is a sign of her belief, an outward sign of her inward belief. It was costly. It was intimate. Mary's devotion was scandalous. Mary's devotion was an act of love. And the last thing on this verse, I want you to slow down and and zoom in with John on. I think he's doing the same thing. I think he's slowing it down too. Was that the whole room was what? Filled with that fragrance. The whole room. And this is that good kind of smell. Like driving past, you're going to lunch and you smell that barbecue spot. Now you're having barbecue because that just smelled too good. Right? Not like when your breath is sucked out of you when you walk into a Bath and Body Works place. Instant headache. All I want to do is get out of there. No, I'm saying that fresh baked bread kind of smell. You guys with me? So that kind of good smell that draws you in, that's what I want you to see. It makes people stop what they're doing and come in and investigate, okay, where is that coming from? Do you ever notice how bad smells have the opposite effect? It drives people out. It drives people away. And sorry to any Bath and Body Works fans in here. Some people love it. The good smell draws you in. The bad smells draw people away. Now remember, this crowd that was outside the house, I picture them beginning to smell this too, coming from the house. And some, it draws them in. They want to investigate. And some, it repels them and draws them away. John 12, verses 4 through 6. Read with me. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what he put in it. Now we meet Judas. And we know from John and The other gospel is that Judas' story, again, it begins here, but we know it doesn't end well for him. He betrays Jesus. He gets a little money for it. He changes his mind, tries to give the money back. The chief priests don't want it. And he goes out and commits suicide. The end of his greed is his own death and destruction. That's where Judas is headed. But for now, though, he's one of the 12. He's on the inside with Jesus. He's in a place that many in the crowd would kill to be on the inside with him. But he's not a friend. He's next to Jesus, but he's not a friend of Jesus. And I want you to see, too, how silent the rest of the disciples were. They were there, too. The other Gospels tell us the other disciples were there. Notice how they don't speak up. They don't come to Mary's defense. And I think their silence is speaking volumes here. I think they're on Judas' side, at least initially, they're going, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. Why, why did we do this? Why don't we do that? And this is a place you don't want to be, and we know that. But remember, they don't know all that we just found out. 
They don't have that inside info on what's going on in, in Judas's mind, his secret motivations. They don't have any of that. So on its face, they're going, well, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I can see where he's coming from there. Now, to give them a little bit of credit, let's get our head around um, Judas's logic a little bit more. So they said they could sell that perfume for how much? 300 denarii. Okay, that's actually a lot of guacamole, okay? We're going to see just how much. Flip backwards with me to John 6, and we're going to use another story to kind of speak into this. John 6 is Jesus feeding the 5,000. Now I'm going to read verses 5 through 7. Lifting up his eyes then, this is Jesus, and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. I love that. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So 200 denarii. Now Philip is guessing here, but we can't quote him exactly. But let's assume he's close, 200 denarii. Now I'll save you the boring, but I mean simple, but boring math work here. And we can uh, extrapolate the data to mean that this oil could be sold and potentially feed thousands of people. Think about that. That is a chunk of change. That's like half of one of those Barrett-Jackson cars. It kind of puts Judas's complaint into perspective a little bit, doesn't it? You might even find yourself agreeing with him and kind of going, yeah, if that could feed thousands of people, that seems like a good thing, right? I picture some getting on the floor and I picture standing there going, well, that's like $20 worth right there on the floor. Like, come on. Now, remember here, it's important that side note that Judas is not saying this for some kind of altruistic sense. He doesn't actually care about the poor. But he's using what he knows about Jesus, what he knows about the Bible, he's using that to justify his thinking, his sin. He's masking his own sin by using Scripture. That's an important point there. But it doesn't change the fact that Judas does bring up a good point. So why not? Why not sell it to feed the poor? Does Jesus not care about the poor, all the people that could be helped? Well, let me ask it from another angle. Is it, in fact, wasteful to pour it out onto the feet of Jesus? Is it actually too extravagant a gift for Jesus? Do you think that if the people had a fuller picture of exactly who was standing there with them, the creator of the universe sat down with them, do you think they would say the same thing? So maybe what's off here is, is our and their view of the worth of Jesus. Maybe that's what's off. Well, Jesus gives us more wisdom in handling the nuance in the next verses, 7 through 8. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So the first thing, Jesus is bringing the attention right back onto himself and onto Mary's devotion, her act of worship. Now, consider for a moment, I read this in, in one of the commentaries, um, the incredible patience that Jesus had for Judas. 
right? If Jesus is God, then he shares in God's omniscience, which is unique to God. He's the only one, the only being who has full knowledge of everything, past, present, and future. So if Jesus is God, of course he's aware that Judas is stealing. Of course he's aware of Judas's evil intentions, and yet is patient with him. He allows him to be in the inner circle still. And I don't know about you, but I find that encouraging, actually, and hopeful. Because I think we're a lot more like Judas than we care to admit. And Jesus is patient with us as he was patient with Judas. And yet Jesus knew full well his betrayal was coming. His death was coming. And like he says, Mary is preparing me for my burial. Okay, so they didn't cremate bodies commonly back then. The Jews would wrap the body in cloth and spices and oils, and this nard and other oils were part of that. Um, That was to show honor to the body, and that was also to help with just the smell of decomposition and stuff like that. This is John foreshadowing again, another pretty obvious one, because Jesus just full-on says, this is what she's doing. But he's foreshadowing the exact scene in John 19, 38 through 42. After the cross, Jesus' body is taken down, and it's actually prepared for burial, this time by two men. He's wrapped in cloth. He is um, bound up with oils and fragrances and things like that. So, But why does Jesus say this about the poor, though? The poor you always have with you, but you don't always have me. At first glance, you might think that maybe is dismissive even. Well, the poor you've always got with you. Like, uh, Don't worry about them. But if we look at the wording here, um, I think this is a hint of Deuteronomy 15. Now, I'm going to turn there. It'll be up on the screen. Tell me if you think this wording sounds familiar. Verse 11, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Okay, wait, let me go back. The poor you will always have with you. Deuteronomy, there will never cease to be poor in the land. you see that connection with me? So if it's a hint at this passage, Jesus would have been very familiar with Deuteronomy. If he's hinting at this passage, then it's important to remember and look at what the rest of the passage says. Here's the rest of Deuteronomy 15, 11. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. It's pretty clear from here and in many other passages and in the Old and New Testament, including Jesus' words, that we as believers, as followers of God, are to give to the poor, the destitute, the ones that are not easy to love or convenient to love, the one no one else wants to love. That's clear. I think what Jesus is doing here is a shorthand way of of pulling the entire Old Testament ethos of the commands of God's people to care for the poor around them. And he's doing it without denigrating their value and while still elevating his own worth. Jesus often communicates in this layered way with lots of wisdom. He's saying, you guys know, Judas, you know what the Bible says about that. You know exactly what the Bible says about that. You do still need to do that. And in fact, when I'm gone, you will be doing that again. But for now, I'm here with you. I'm here. 
Like Jesus says, the poor will always have with us. He's expecting us to take care of them. But for now, in this passage, he was there physically, bodily, with them. And that's unique. And now, I don't know if it's the aroma drifting out of the house, like we mentioned, or the word is starting to get out. There's there's this guy, Lazarus, this guy, Jesus, together in this house in, in Bethany. But the crowd begins to grow more. And they're pressing in close around, and something must be done. Verses 9 through 11, read with me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account to see Lazarus, no, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. John throws in another little reminder there. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So Frank got into this last week. Here's this council again of Bible scholars, religious leaders in the community plotting again because what they've done so far is not working. It's continuing to grow. Word's getting out. Now they include Lazarus too. So they're escalating things here. You can start to see their desperation in their planning a little bit. And no surprise, their solution is, well, let's murder him. We were already going to murder Jesus. Let's just murder this guy too. It starts to make you think, how long is this list of murder people going to be? How many people are they going to kill before they realize they can't stop this movement? That God is doing something here and that they're actually, in a twisted way, kind of accomplishing God's work through their plotting and their plans. Because we know that eventually they did, in fact, succeed in half of this plan. They did kill Jesus. That part worked. But in fact, in doing that, God's purposes were accomplished for you and me sitting here later on that the Passover lamb was slain for us. His blood is what marks us as Christians. And this is the last we hear of Lazarus right here. That's the last we hear. They made plans to kill him. We don't get any clues about whether or not they succeeded. But if you want to know more, that's one of the things I wrote in this last semester of school. I wrote a paper on that, like 10 pages, on whether or not we can know if Lazarus was killed. So if you want that, I'll send it to you. We don't have time for that here. But there's this thing I remember learning about back in high school, and that's always kind of stuck with me. We were learning about air particles, like much like the fragrance here that's being talked about, and how they move through rooms, like in this passage. So we understand this, right? Like when we're on an airplane and we open up a bag of beef jerky or tuna salad, pretty soon everyone in the plane is going to smell that with us. We know that, right? I don't know if the people opening those know that, but, but we know that. I remember this idea being called the browning effect, and I would use that, you know, just out of high school. I'd go, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, according to the browning effect, um, what what this means is, and I would kind of use that, but as I'm looking it up to, to share with you guys, I can't find anything on the browning effect. I think I'm remembering it wrong because what I found was that the the browning effect is what happens, and I'm not making this up, to like chicken and vegetables when you cook them too long. They brown on the top. Not, not quite exactly what I was um, remembering. So it turns out what I was thinking of was called diffusion, okay? So like, like what you might have in your house, a diffuser. It's not that hard to figure out. Okay, 
So the idea there is that the particles start concentrated, but that they grow to fill the space that they're in. That's just what they do. They grow, and eventually, undisturbed would evenly spread and fill that whole space. Now, if they get outside, they will grow again. Even across the whole world, evenly spread around if they stay in the atmosphere and all that. And that idea has always kind of fascinated me. And so without putting too fine a point on it, I'd like, you to get, I'd like to get you to consider this, that as followers of Christ, we are the diffusion of what began in this room. And that's spread all across the globe to us in Arizona. It's spread to us, and now we are the continuance of that diffusion of the aroma of Christ into our workplaces, our communities, friendships and families, everything you do, you could say all of life for Christians looks like this. So I'll say it again this time as a question. When people see you and they know you, when they speak to us and hear us speak, when they watch how we interact with others and on and on the list goes, are people drawn in by the aroma of Christ through us Christians? Is it something that draws them in like the good smells do? Now, I'm not saying I do this any better than anyone else. We need Jesus for this, right? Because we're not faithful all the time. And there's hope in the times that we don't do this well. Hope in the fact that the work of Christ began, this diffusion began before you came along, and it's going to continue after you're gone. But... God invites us into that, and the Spirit of God equips us for that, guiding us step by step, moment by moment, sanctifying us to look more like him. Now, remember, at the center of this was Mary's loving act of devotion. That's what started this. Jesus said we would be known as Christians by our what? Love. Love is the fragrance of Christ to the world. It seasons everything we do. And now, we're not talking about a hallmark kind of love. We're not talking about the kind of love that says, do whatever you want, it's all good. That's not love. It's a service kind of love. If you're in here and you're married, you know love is service. It's an active kind of love. The kind of love that Mary showed us here. Like her, a love that that believes and obeys Jesus' words, a love that is costly. That oil was probably the most expensive thing that she owned. It's a love that is intimately in relationship with Jesus. We've got to know him, church. A love that's more concerned with what Jesus thinks than anyone else. This is the kind of love that Jesus offers us, that Mary shows us, and that we can model, knowing that when we fall short... God is gracious. Amen? Who wouldn't want to live in that kind of community? Who wouldn't want to surround themselves with people like that? Now, maybe you're here and you're thinking, that I don't know, this sounds like a lot to ask. Something smells a little fishy here. And if that's you, I challenge you with this. Read your Bible. Actually, just read it. Read the Gospel of John over and over. And as you learn things, pray those things back to God. Super simple. Just read it, whatever God shows you, whatever you, you realize, pray that back to God. The rest will come. And to everyone else, I'd say this, church, 
the most important thing I can possibly encourage you to do is this. Draw near to Jesus. God is near to you. He's near. Draw near to him. It's time to get off the sidelines and into the game. Get as close to Jesus as Mary is in this story. And don't let anything tear you away from that. And we need Jesus even for this. Let's pray that God would make us more like Mary. So in awe of his just presence. He's just there. And therefore, we can't help but worship him. To humble ourselves at his feet. Learning from him through his word. Believing his word. And just as important, doing what it says. And like Mary, let's fill the room with our devotion. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you that you are the great Passover lamb. And as unfamiliar as we might be with the custom of Passover, we can simply know and remember that you made a way for us to God. That in our sin, we are stuck. We can't save ourselves. We've tried, God. We can't. We fall short over and over and over. But God, it's not our effort that saves us. It's your grace that saves us. So I pray that what people would hear this morning is that it's Mary's proximity to you, Jesus, that began this fragrance that filled the room, that ignited hearts. We need to be closer to you, Jesus. You're not just in the past, someone who was really good at making disciples and followers, God, you're, you're alive now. And all we, although we don't have you bodily with us, we have your spirit making disciples of you, Jesus, as we read your word, even now. What a beautiful, miraculous thing that you invite us into. Help us to be faithful. And yet, God, we thank you that you are faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he instituted what we now know as communion, which we take every week. And if you didn't get one of these on your way in, please grab one now. He called it a new commandment or a new covenant. We take communion to remember his blood that was shed for us and his body that was broken for us in the single greatest act of love ever done. He did it so that you and I could sacrificially love each other to continue the work that Jesus started in devotion like Mary, carrying the fragrance of Christ's love wherever we go. These are Jesus' words in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so in this time, we respond in a few ways. We encourage you to come forward and receive prayer. We'll have elders and deacons and staff up, up here on the side ready to pray with you, ready to pray for you. I encourage you to come forward. And we receive communion. I'd encourage you to do it prayerfully, to do it slowly, to consider God's work in your heart. Consider your own sin. 
Are there things that God's calling you to repent of specifically? Now's the time. We remember God's work for us. And then, church, we're going to sing. We're going to sing of the great love of God. We're going to sing because Jesus is good. Amen? He's faithful. Amen? And then from here, we go out in full assurance of our place and our standing with God. Because of the Passover lamb, we reflect on the devotion of Mary and the goodness of Jesus until we gather again next week and we do it all over again. So let's respond now. This is my
for me Love's like a hurricane I am a tree Bending beneath The weight of His wind and mercy When all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions Eclipsed by glory And I realize just how beautiful you are And how great your affections are for me And oh, how he loves us all Oh, how he loves us How he loves us so a hurricane I am a tree bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy when all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions eclipsed by glory and I realize just how beautiful you are and how great your affections are
Amen. Thank you for being together with the Lord and with one another to worship and for the word and the sacrament. I want to share a benediction for us today out of Revelation chapter 1. It says this, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus.